0: everyone here today. We have uh, John Laterra, the CEO of RealFi Home Funding. We have Charles Ruffin, who is a senior uh, business developer at Axos Bank. Um, Axos has 14 billion AUM, and they're very active in the, the commercial space. Um, we have Evan Connolly, um, who is uh, CEO of Palm Beach AMC. They are a national AMC, uh, and they work with over 10,000 appraisers nationwide. So we're, uh, the topic of today's webinar is uh, challenges in today's real estate market. And we, we basically just wanted to initiate a candid dialogue about uh, real world problems and issues that, that we face as, as lenders, as appraisers um, in the industry today. Um, and just offer up not only issues, but potential solutions to those issues. Um, so with that being said, I'd like to start with John. So uh, John, what face it, uh, what challenges do you face today as a lender?
1: Wow, it's such a blanket question. Let me, let me see where <laughs> I can start. So as, a, as, a, as many of you know, like what's been going on in the industry, a lot of the sectors of the market I feel have have changed forever. And and Andrew, you and I were just talking a little bit about how some buildings and assets become, almost become even obsolete, which is leading us now to see more and more assets being repurposed and repositioned, um, such as hotels that we were just talking about. So for instance, I'll just kind of give you my quick overview of what, what I see in the market. I was thinking about this before I hopped on but um, at RealFi on the private lending side, on the non-agency side, we are not at all, or still remain not bullish on, and I'll just give you the litany of the list real fast, right, traditional retail, where we're not bullish on traditional retail. We still see issues with retail. We see store closings, vacancy are still rising. However, the bright side to that is we've been seeing more and more, in fact, we just closed on something beginning of this week, because what I call my exception to retail now is grocery anchored centers, anything with, believe it or not, I I love these dollar stores that are popping up. I think those are fantastic. So retail centers with grocery stores, uh, these dollar stores, any kind of home improvement retailers, medical aspect to it, we'll jump in and we'll do that. We are, we are not bullish at all on urban buildings. We, um, If we do look at at a building in the city quite frankly we will look at that with vastly different outcomes based on location and whether buildings nowadays have flexible layouts with respect to better ventilation systems flexible floor plans modern amenities i want all the touchless systems within a building that's the only way we're looking at that not bullish at all on luxury apartment buildings um luxury apartments not bullish on hotels so what do I like? Where do I see some, some good industry and, and some good things in the industry, right? Well, we are, and we remain bullish and we've done a, a, a lot of lending this year alone, a lot of loans on industrial properties. The surge in online spending continues to spur tenant demand with, uh, with industrial properties. And when I say industrial properties, I include, that includes data centers, the, I love the last mile e-commerce related industry asset, self-storage facilities. And last week alone, we closed on our first studio space to start doing the studio warehousing for streaming videos, such as Netflix, Amazon. We're starting to really see a lot of that in the market and obviously remain very bullish on multifamily properties. We think tenant demand is still increasing. We see rents going back to record levels throughout most of the country. I will say, and not to monopolize the conversation, I'll end with this point, but I will say we are seeing a shift away from the expensive downtown markets and towards smaller, more affordable ones. And I'm not sure if you see it at WeLend, but we're doing a lot more of this type lending in the Sunbelt region of the countries where we're seeing a lot of this occur. So that's sort of where we are in the market right now. Love to hear what Charles and Evan think.
0: Uh, to Charles, so, go for you, i'm Charlie. the amc
2: guy i just know that the sun Belt is the fastest burn you know the south and the southwest is the fastest growing region in the country and, and we're very busy there. so I, I can uh you know i can concur with that but as far as lending goes i'm the amc
3: guy so and we're mostly residential sure i could step in and give you my viewpoint so overall you have to uh, look at um with axos where we are in the market compared to other lenders so pretty much we're an alternative lender. We look at a lot of transactions that other banks might've passed on. So I'm not necessarily concentrating on clients or deals in which I have a borrower, pretty much a perfect borrower, great property, boatload of properties to drop in my lap for future financing. And with that, that type of client wants the lowest rates and the highest leverage. Our platform is based upon uh, basically storytelling. So there's some reason why you're gonna come to Axos that could be an issue with an unfavorable property type like hotels, like currently in the market. It could be an issue of a foreign national or a borrower, maybe a past bankruptcy, the closure, modification. As a bank, we can look at a wide variety of alternatives and with that, we look at situations in which other lenders might not consider. So as far as what we're doing in uh, financing, it's a nationwide platform from the West Coast, to the East Coast, but in major metropolitan markets. So today I'm doing a lot of actual hotel financing, ground up hotel financing. Uh, we can do bridge loans for hotels as well. And perm financing um, stabilized and non stabilized properties as far as with hotels, but dealing with multifamily mixed use industrial warehouse that's a great asset class a lot of times I get beat out on those particular deals if is a plain vanilla scenario. So we look for those scenarios in which we can add value. And since we're a bank and my cost of capital is cheap, I look at these different scenarios or rates starting off in the fours. So as far as issues in which we uh, do see like in the market and pretty much a lot of other individuals as well too, uh, depending on where you're located, like in the Metro New York market and Hamptons, it's like a delay what we've seen for appraisals coming in and things of that nature. Other areas where we live, like certain parts of the West Coast and the South, it's a quicker time period with the appraisal. Like I'm doing a um, basically a property in Hamptons now, single family um, investment, and the quote was four weeks just to get the appraisal back in the Hamptons. Um, in the city, you know, is better than that, but Not too much better. But if you go to some other places, other states, major metropolitan markets, it's, um, it, you can get it back much quicker. So it kind of depends on the location where we are considering the request and things of that nature. But a good example, I'm working on a construction of a ground-up hotel deal um, Salt Lake City. So that one's been put on hold in a sense because um, the individual borrower, he's having a hard time dealing with the contractors regarding getting quotes because uh, the cost of the supplies is skyrocketing. So there are different parts of the deal that have to be finalized as far as these quotes for materials and things of that nature before we can kind of go forward. So the borrower's like, okay, we still want to go forward with the transaction. This is like ground up construction financing for a hotel but I have to get this part of the deal straightened out. So it kind of depends on the scenario, the location, the asset class and things of that nature. So there are, we're dealing with these particular restraints in the market, supply chain, things of that nature, plus the appraisals. But overall, we're still pretty active, even though we are dealing with these particular circumstances currently.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Charles, um, or several great points. Um, and, and I'll just kind of use uh, your your comments on the the appraisal issues that you're you're facing uh, to just shift gears to, to that focus for the time being. Um, so we find that uh, today, when a deal comes in and it's signed up, the the key focus at the the initial stages is just ordering the appraisal, making sure that they're getting out to do the inspection. It's almost like the transaction is focused so much around the appraisal process because of the potential delays involved um so I, with with that being said uh, evan like what issues are you seeing on the grounds with uh with your appraisers um and, and to, like do you see a shortage uh like just be our eyes and ears for us
2: sure sure turn times increasing is is legit in most markets um and you said shortage The statistics say that there is an appraisal decline in population. Um, And I can throw some statistics at you so you understand that and explain why it's happening and what's being done about it. But to address this particular issue, uh, this is is volume and market driven, right? Um, I would say to someone, raise your hand if you feel guilty in our industry that so many people were, were out of work in the beginning of the pandemic. And we, our phones running off the hook because of rates, right? So the volume right now, because of purchases, because of refis, is in certain markets causing the delay. In 2018, 2019, you could turn an appraiser appraisal. In New Jersey, we were turning it in five days. Right in Texas, California, it, it's five to seven, tops ten days to turn an appraisal. Now fast forward to 2020, 2021, you can still turn something in seven to ten days in New Jersey, but Texas, if you're in the Houston market or the El Paso market, you're talking three to four weeks. Um, and you know Maine and Colorado; those are tough markets, and those are markets where there are not a lot of appraisers. So that's both appraiser population and volume driven. Um, so uh, the issue more today is volume of loans coming through, and you know, our, our phones are, ringing, we're blessed because the phones are ringing off the hook if you're a loan officer and you're, or you're a, a broker. Um, the statistics do say though that the appraiser population is declining, right? And there's reasons for that. So <coughs> in 2013, there were 89,000 appraisers. 2021, there's 78,000 appraisers, 12% decline in eight years, right? And that's accelerating. And it's accelerating because 50% of appraisals are over 50 years old, 10% are over 66 years old. So the major governing bodies for appraisals are taking action now because of this. So they are the Appraisal Foundation, which is a government uh, a government organization that oversees the appraisal every single state's appraisal regulatory board. The other one is the Appraisal Institute, which is made up of uh, it's like the NBA. Right, It's made up of every appraiser in the country they join this institute. So they recognize that there's a shortage. There's also a tremendous diversity shortage. So they have programs in place. The reason it's hard to get new appraisers is the barrier to entry is very challenging for someone to want to do it, right? You're a young person. You want to get into the industry, you've got to take, it's the better part of two years before you have a license. You're taking 80 hours worth of courseware, you're taking four tests then you're working between 1500 and 3000 hours, depending on the state, under uh, as an apprentice under a real appraiser. People could be willing to do that, but the appraisers aren't willing to do that because they'll lose, they'll spend time on someone, they'll lose that appraiser, or they'll get a, a real winner, they'll hire them, and then that person might leave in a year and start their own business. So there's a yeah, bad that,
1: that's after months. four years of college, right.
2: No, uh, that was true, John, but they've changed that. So you don't need a college degree in order to become an appraiser now. That's a recent change within the past few years, which is a good change. Um, So the appraisal foundation, again, which was started from the government, has something called Paria, um, Practical Practical Applications for Real Estate (laughs) Appraisal Service Professions. And they are using innovation to change the criteria to become an appraiser uh, it's a lot of it is, is virtually driven. Um, a lot of there's online testing, a lot of it's technology. You're not spending 2000 hours in the field, but you're spending some time in the field and they're marketing at the colleges. Some colleges they have that are actually teaching appraisal courses. Again, you don't need a college education to become an appraiser. The appraisal foundation also has a partnership. So the appraisal, Fo- I'm sorry, the appraisal Institute is the, um, the national one's the biggest appraiser national organization. They have got initiatives too, so they've got they have diversity initiatives, they have recruiting in high school and college initiatives, so they've recognized this. And I, th- I guess they recognize it on time because the appraiser industry, I guess, population is declining, but um, but we're not seeing you know dramatic decreases in turn times based on the population right now. Except in those certain markets that I mentioned, the Palo Alto's, the Maines, the Texas. Um, so uh, so things are are turning for the better. And it's a desirable job for young people. You write your own hours, you know, you have a lot of freedom. So, you know, you've heard you, you should hear some encouraging things coming from the
1: market. Hey, Evan, a quick question, quick question. I know in, in the height of COVID in, in March, I think it was a nine, one, 2020 that the, if I'm not mistaken, I remember reading something that the federal housing authority eased all the standard on the appraisals and they were allowing the drive-by desktop valuations. And is that, do you still see that occurring or is it back to the stringent standards?
2: No, so you're absolutely right, The great question. So in March, 2020, the FHFA instituted that that you could do desktop drive-by appraisals. Um, and last week in San Diego, was it last week the, uh, the National, National, National Conference? Conference. So Sandra Thomas Thompson is the uh, director of the FHFA. She made an announcement to rousing applause that she's going to reinstate, they had ended it, they're going to reinstitute desktop appraisals. But what she's really talking about there is in rural locations. So she's talking about the appraiser who wakes up in the morning, leaves the home office, drives to Timbuktu and reviews a property, inspects it, then drives to East Jabib and reviews a property, and then gets home at eight o'clock at night and is supposed to sit down and do their desk work. So shes that was the main focus of what she's talking about is easing those restrictions on those type of rural properties. Whether we'll go into the overall market is, a, is still a big question. Um, and quite frankly, if I was buying a house, I do want the to do with the inspection. So for, for the large part uh, um, that should help in some markets and she has just reinstituted it.
0: It's almost like you're i i mean just to comment on your point that you you want a real person to like to go to the house and physically inspect it um i mean i feel like that would lead to a whole host of issues of just by doing uh, and allowing drive-bys that like uh, people uh, like first-time home bars were unsuspecting may not know but they're they might have a an issue with the the boiler or like some other like utility in the home, uh, which wouldn't necessarily come up in the inspection because they, the, the inspector didn't physically go to the premises.
2: Exactly. I, I, this is an anecdote, but I was talking to one of my loan officers about this recently, one of my customers about this recently. Say your brother or sister comes in and they want to borrow some money to buy their first house. She says, all right, I'm going to put 20% down, put $60,000 down. Can I borrow $240,000 from you? And you said yeah, sure. I have the money. I'll, I'll lend you 240 dollars And she says, oh, I'm going to pay you every month. I'll pay you with interest every month. And he says, can I, and you say, can I go see the property with you? And she says, no, don't worry about seeing the property. It's not a big deal. You don't have to see it. Uh, and then she, she says, well, is, you say, Was it wasn't an ins- inspective or, or is the appraiser going to see it? No, it's all going to be done in this time. Don't, don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, you're not going to give her your money, <laughs> so that's that's an issue, and that's how an underwriter thinks, right? That's not how a broker thinks, and I love brokers, and they give us a lot of business, and I love L.O.S. They give us a, a lot of business, but it's someone else's money, and you want to close a deal, you want the deal to go through, um, but if you if you need to think a little bit like the underwriter, who's really thinking like it's my money. Um, in the same token, the appraiser appraises the property is thinking, I've got to get this, I've got to do this job, right? Believe me, appraisers are just like us. They, they want a new home buyer to get into that house. They want the seller to sell the house. They want the real estate agent to make their commission and the LO to make their commission, right? They want to keep their license. So they're going to do what they can to make things work. So that deal can close within the parameters that they have. But if an appraiser gets on a chase, you know, you sell a loan to Chase or Wells, appraiser gets out of chase or wells do not use list, that's the scarlet letter. I mean they're they're gonna lose money for a couple of years and, and it's a real tough issue for them. So as much as the appraiser wants it to work too, they're they're kind of bound by the regulations that are in place. Um, and you know they're kind of thinking like the LO and the underwriter combined.
1: Yeah if I could um and if I could just add a comment um to yeah. Charles's point as As bridge lenders, I'm I'm listening to you, and obviously, as Charles alluded to, we're value-add lenders, whereas there's always a story, special circumstance, something. So when the desktop appraisals and the drive-bys were occurring, again, I mean, we saw a tremendous opportunity to jump in when a lot of banks were actually jumping out because we have the wherewithal, since we balance sheet, the majority of our loans, to just lower the LTVs and to juice up the yield a little bit and take that additional risk of not actually seeing the inside or having the full blown appraisal, number one. Number two, what, and and again, I'm coming at this more in the private lending world, not from the banking world, but the other luxury I think bridge lenders, and I know WeLand and Access has the same luxury. Oftentimes we can close without an appraisal. Obviously we're still gonna send one of our guys there, look at the property, walk the property, close the transaction and then wait for the appraisal. So those are sort of just two ways that I know at least during COVID, COVID and even while the shortage remains that we were getting around the whole appraisal shortage.
0: Yeah, and I think another strategy is just to order a rush appraisal and then uh, wait for the verbal. So that'll take three to five days. Um, and then uh, it, close and then just get the, the appraisal report afterwards. But obviously you don't only want to do that with a, a trusted appraiser uh, that you've worked with a lot of times in the past. Um, so a oh, quick point from uh, Axel's point of view,
3: I wish I could close without an appraisal. That would be, be like someone in my positions, I would like the ultimate dream, but I have to have an appraisal every time I do a closing, but one way we kind of get around it, because like I mentioned, a lot of times the deals we've seen have been maybe turned down by other banks. We can actually use an appraisal from another bank or credit union, or sometimes a um, mortgage banking entity. And as long as it's within like a six month time period. And if we have that, that really cuts down the delay of closing a transaction you can get it closed within like two to three weeks you know ballpark so that's like another way um, during this whole issue of uh time delays dealing with receiving an appraisal we try and make it convenient or or easy for a client or mortgage broker professional to use an existing appraisal we'll still review it and things of that nature make sure we're comfortable with it but that can be done as well
0: that's a really good point I have a question. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. So just to just shift gears. um, So I think that like one of the the most prevalent issues that we're facing right now is just the supply supply chain issues. uh, Which is leading to the the cost of building materials to go up and it's kind of just affecting the industry in a number of ways. I kind of just wanted everyone's input on that. Uh, Charles, if if you'd like to start.
3: Uh, sure. Like I mentioned earlier, so really, where I see that um, being uh, more of an issue is on construction requests because we do a lot of ground-up construction. Typically, you know, for hotels, we're at fifty percent loan to cost. For other property types, fifty-five. But we do allow Mez and Prefect to bring that up to around eighty loan to cost. But the whole issue there is that budget and what that particular individual sponsor. Um, uh, thinks that the cost will be so they have that in the beginning, but what we see at different times that budget just being blown out of the water by the rising increase in supplies and the whole issue of uh, labor as well too. So that's where I usually see, you know, more recently over the last, you know, six or seven months, see that particular um, being in the forefront Uh, on the construction area. The other area in which we're in as far as permanent financing and bridge loans and things of that nature, a lot of times, we're not more, we're not really as much into the value add space. So the whole issue of the supplies and things of that nature needed to, you know, uh, reposition a property, whatever that isn't necessarily a bigger issue because the properties are typically in decent condition or it might be a lease up play or something of that nature. So really is more what we see that on the construction side versus some of the other PERM uh, bridge scenarios with the bank.
0: Sure, um, John, what are your thoughts on the supply chain issues? The lack of uh, lack of construction labor that's out there in the fields?
1: I think Charles summed it up brilliantly. The the one thing that I would add is from, again, from a lender's perspective, when we're on these new construction and we're on a ton of new construction projects right now, a typical investment or a typical loan for us would be a a 12 to 18 month maturity. But because of all the bottlenecks and everything that's occurring, we're seeing those maturities go to 24, even 36 months out. So we're taking that all into account when we do our disbursements or allocations, and our extension fees, obviously. And the the last aspect is also where we're assisting the sponsors and the builders in making sure their projections are, are accurate. So you're not going to get a building done in New York or New Jersey or even Connecticut okay. any longer in, in 12 to 18 months. You're not getting sealed in 24 months I mean, just because of everything that's going on.
3: Yeah, John brought up an excellent point too. As far as our lending on the construction side, another aspect that makes us kind of unique is we will provide financing to stall construction projects. Because certain times a lender uh, might be more or less um, at a point where um, that particular project has run over budget and they're like, well, you've burnt through the time period in which this loan should have been, you know, wrapped up. So, uh, depending on a scenario, we will be willing to step into a project that has stalled, you know, assuming it fits our uh, leverage requirement. And sometimes that particular client might have to put, you know, more equity into the deal. But I think that's very unusual for a bank being able to step into a transaction of a stalled construction project. And typically our rates are usually in the mid fives for construction financing. So um, it makes it very appealing for those scenarios in which we have a sponsor that has a lot of equity or have the ability to maybe pay down a low sum to move that project to fruition. Yeah,
1: I'll add one more comment also, Andrew, that, that we've seen that really is helping sponsors, obviously as private lenders, when someone puts in a, Puts in a disbursement request we're out there the same day and we usually have funds to that sponsor or to that borrower the same day so once you get all of your laborers paid within 24 hours everything starts to really run a lot more fluidly after that so we've had great success doing that
0: that's a that's a huge benefit i mean just because uh Draws can take a lot longer with other institutions, um, so I think just regarding um, the just the the issues surrounding construction, right? There's a shortage of labor. There's uh, increasing supplies, uh, price of supplies, um, and then there's a, a tightening uh, finance market as well, just because. Uh, most lenders aren't especially depending on the asset type on certain assets uh pools of capital have dried up for construction um so namely retail like uh, retail construction financing is a a lot it's a lot more difficult to come by today maybe with the exception of like triple net assets that are um have guaranteed leases from mcdonald's or another another corporation like that um, but what issues are you guys seeing on the ground from your borrowers? Uh, well, uh, as far as, you know, like you just we're
3: referring to like construction and if it's like on retail or something of that nature, so I think it depends on the institution, uh, the lender, it depends on the location, because um, as far as Liquidity and construction financing overall. A lot of places in the United States, um, a, a lot of local banks are very active in construction financing, especially if you have a solid property and a solid sponsor with the liquidity PFS and the track record. Um, you will see, you know, even on retail property types, you will see uh, local banks going in to provide the financing that might not be as high as leverage as you're going to find for multifamily or like, you know, an investment warehouse property type. But the point dealing with the banks is is very, is a very competitive market out there. So much liquidity uh, from like, you know, like with John's entity, like private lenders, um, non-bank lenders, and it's hard to get a deal in which a lot of banks feel comfortable with. So when you do have entities that fit the requirement for construction financing like I mentioned great property as far as what they're building it makes sense Uh, strong sponsor they have a track record you do see banks providing uh, construction financing and so I think it's plentiful depending on if you have the right deal or not if you have the wrong deal you're going to always have a problem receiving construction financing no matter which type of market you're in because construction financing, is the hardest type of financing to receive, so many pitfalls associated with it. But you know, um, I see broadly um, a lot of the local banks, especially in great areas, uh, major metropolitan markets, being uh, open to construction if it fits their parameters.
1: Yeah, if I could just add to Charles's point, is what does every developer and every sponsor want? They want they want more money. So the higher you could come in on that LTV, that's your competitive advantage. When I'm looking at a construction deal and I'm talking to the sponsors, very rarely is a sponsor coming back to me and saying, your rate is too high. Usually what they're coming back to me and saying is your LTV is too low and we want a higher LTV. So cash is king when it comes to new construction. And one of the things we were very successful in doing is, over the last couple of months, we, we did a deal, and just to use it as, a, as an example, we closed $70 million or around $70 million just in Patterson, New Jersey alone mm-hmm. on new development. And the reason we were successful is we were able to give the developer 100% of the development cost only because we cross-collateralized with stabilized operating buildings, free and clear, that he already owned. So these are just some of the ways that you can get more entrepreneurial and more creative in order to get more money in the developer's hand, or said a different way, less money out of the developer's pocket.
3: That's a very good point, Uh, that's very creative. So, how we kind of um, deal with that particular burden of uh, wanting, uh, as far as from the sponsor, higher loan to cost on construction, because, you know we're at 55 like i mentioned unless it's for a hotel we're at 50 the market easy 60 65 some places 70 depending on the market where you're at we do allow um, mezzanine and pref equity to come behind more or less our particular first mortgage so there the bank has a comfort level being in a safe position 50 55 then we also allow that particular client to you know, have that additional leverage. Now, I see that more applicable on uh, property types, you know, like we're talking about hotel financing. If it's multifamily, you can easily find entities in local banks, 65, some even 70, some of these debt funds, 80, 85, and things of that nature. But how we kind of compensate for our lower loan to cost is usually by prep for a mezzanine with the uh, first, what we have,
1: and Charles, if you don't mind me asking, do you supply the entire capital stack, or do you go to third parties to bring in the mezz and the press? I,
3: I wish I could. We don't. We're, we're not that. We haven't gone to that extent yet. But um, usually, it's the um, the intermediary, the broker. So they'll have a contact. Or sometimes it's a the client themselves and with some entity they've worked with. And then they'll bring like that mezz or PREF equity entity into the deal. And we'll, you know, we'll check them out, make sure we're comfortable with them. But usually, you know, as long as they have a standard track record, we'll be fine with that. But no, we don't typically bring them uh, to the table. It's usually the capital advisor, mortgage broker, who usually provides them.
0: So on our end, our position is that we don't we don't like anyone behind us just in the event that the deal goes bad. We don't want to have to get into a fight with a, a MES lender or a, a PREF investor. Um, so we only do first. We don't allow anyone behind us. Um, shifting gears. So I, I'd like to kind of just uh, circle back to Evan's expertise on the, the, the appraisal process. Um, so. Evan, with the issues that we're facing today in terms of uh, there being an insufficient supply of appraisers for the amount for the volume of appraisals that's out there, uh, what sort of solutions would you have to offer to alleviate this bottleneck?
2: Well, um, I would say that it's it's mostly in certain markets and it's mostly volume driven, Andrew. But um, one of the things that that uh, is causing pressure on appraisers is that the rules, when we had normal volume, right? Um, and we all have to agree, volume in residential has increased dramatically. Refi have increased dramatically since these rates came down. Brokers and LOs are saying, hey, well, can close in 20 days? We we'll can close in 30 days. Um, and you're not necessarily factoring in, if you're in El Paso, Texas, if you're in Waterbury, Connecticut, that's gonna be a three-week turn on the appraisal alone, or you're gonna pay an exorbitant amount of it because of inventory, right? So I, I think that more of transparency in what's realistic in certain markets. Now, again, if you're in New Jersey, uh, if you're in um, certain markets in Florida, you can turn in six, seven days, Others neighborhoods in Florida, depending on the zip code, it's three weeks, right? So um, again, it's like market driven, the volume in that market, which can change, you know, from month to month. And it's what you're promising your customers, right? Um, and, and I don't want to say as an AMCO, you know, you know, uh, we can't get that done in, in seven days. It's going to take two and a half weeks. But what we do, And what our customers appreciate is we give you the information. We tell you exactly what's happening, what's possible. We'll say, yeah, we can get this appraisal in eight days. It's gonna be $1,200. If you can wait 14 days, it's gonna be $600. So people appreciate that choice, um, depending on how fast someone wants to get into that home or want to close the deal. So that's one thing that could alleviate pressure. Rates next year, uh, let's, see what, let's see what happens. Um, home prices are supposed to increase according to Goldman Sachs and everybody else. Um, housing starts are up, but inventory is still probably gonna be low. So, uh, you know, we'll see. It's, it's really market and volume driven.
0: Sure. Um, so do you have any like particular suggestions as to like the technology that could be implemented or like other measures that AMCs um, could implement in order to speed up the process?
2: Great question. So there has been a lot of efforts to create a technology that could solve this problem. Like Google invested, I don't know, $40 million in a company, still a private company um, that was hopefully going to help change the market. So appraisalers would still do the appraisal, but they do it at their desk and use virtual tools. it's uh, incapable of accomplishing that without the, the real home inspection. Um, <clears throat> so that didn't take off. And there's been other companies that have been trying, they're doing this a massive market, right? So there's, there's technology tools, there's AVMs, um, but there's nothing that's really gonna change the supply demand issue in certain markets while there's still a project a physical appraisal. I don't see the physical appraisal changing very soon. John mentioned earlier what the FHFA said, and again, I think that applies to rural areas and low-income families more than the general market. Um, so uh, there's not a technology right now. I mean, we we have our technology that text appraisers in their field rather than having to wait until they get home and read their email and get up on status. We're in touch with them constantly, you know, every day. We work with these appraisers day in, day out, you know, six, seven days a week. For the last two years, they're working that hard. But uh, yeah, there isn't anything right now that's going to change the game dramatically, except increasing appraisers in certain markets. I mean, if you want to be busy and you want a job, go to Colorado and become an appraiser. Go up to Maine and become an appraiser. I mean, you're gonna have you're gonna have as much work as you could possibly
0: want. Um, I, I'll, I'll stick to the private lending business, but <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the offer. Um, so uh, you had mentioned earlier that like one of the factors that's relevant, which I, I entirely agree, is the potential for rising interest rates in the coming years. Um, so, uh, John, to throw it over to you. How do you think interest rates, uh, the potential of uh, interest rates rising, will affect the market?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think from depends on which market we're talking about, and I say that because ve- very oftentimes you're looking at it from a buyer's market, a seller's market, a private lenders' market, a um, a banker's market, as compared to a to a to a private lenders' market. So. I think generally speaking, we need to start by looking at the broader macroeconomic trends and how those translate into into physical real estate along with the interest rates rising. So I could just talk about it from a private -hmm. private lending standpoint, which is sort of my specialty. And obviously, uh, the Fed has often come out and said it's going to be a low interest rate market from here on in. We've seen that. But if the rates are and, and we've seen them tick up a bit. And as they continue to tick up, it's just, it, it really helps the private lending market. I mean, that's now obviously the spreads are less competitive. More and more sponsors, more and more borrowers tend to flock towards the private lending, not having to deal with the institutions, not wanting to go through what an institutional bank will obviously make them go through in, in an effort to get that loan. We, I think uh, in addition to just interest rates and what interest rates do do to the market, you have to ask yourself, what will also be the primary economic drivers over the next few decades? And how will those economic drivers impact demand or lack of demand for certain asset types, for certain types of properties? So it's it's really not just how the interest rates are gonna affect our market, but I truly believe it's more or less how the broader macroeconomic trends are affecting all of
0: our markets yeah it's a great point i mean uh, with inflation increasing at the rate at which it is um i think that's uh, more of a concern and more of a, a driving factor than the potential for interest rates to go up next year significant uh 25 percent yeah um and I, I think that just kind of ties into just the overall theme of just like hey um there's a certain shift in the overall uh, economy right now, which is affecting the real estate market. So namely uh, with inflation going up and uh, with uh, this supply chain issue that we're facing overall, but uh, these are the sorts of factors which are impacting real estate investors. And then we're kind of just seeing the, the, the effects from uh from their activities um
1: yeah if you recall andrew not to i mean you made a great point if you if you recall march of 2020 right the initial expectations of a protracted recession and recovery is going to span several years well that never occurred in fact the the economy began to bounce back as quickly as it shut down so the recession ended up if i'm not mistaken just based on all the of the legal opinions only lasted about two months, which is one of the shortest recessions on record. In fact, economic output, as I'm sure you're reading, it's already back above pre-COVID levels. And jobs, if you read this morning, jobs are expected to recover to the previous levels by the beginning of 2022. So it's a perfect indication of where we are.
0: Entirely. it's kind of given the the strong uh, economic state that we're in, uh, the, gov- the the idea that the federal government would want to issue 3.5 trillion dollars in like so-called uh, like bailout money, which it seems like that moment that there was significant pushback on that number and it's going to be reduced significantly. but it, it almost seems like that number should be curtailed significantly. Uh, to be in line with where the economy is at this point. Yep, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what other high level issues are you guys facing on the grounds? Like, what are you seeing from your investors uh, in terms of the issues that they're facing?
3: Um, as far as with different individual um, real estate investors, this- One of the hardest ones is trying to find a asset that makes sense regarding the return. So, you know, one of that, what we're talking about here is how robust the economy is. So the downside is if you're an investor or you're a real estate entrepreneur trying to find your next deal, it's so competitive. uh, The prices, depending on where you're at is, you know, so it doesn't make any sense as far as what return you uh, are trying to achieve. So I think that's one of the the bigger issues here uh, in which you do find uh, these investors running across is just trying to find a decent deal that makes sense. So uh, investor side, that's uh, one of the issues I've seen and you know, just working with different investors in general, looking at different setups and analyzing it, and then they go to the next one and next one and things of that nature, or you might end up in a uh, bidding war for a particular property. So. That's uh, one of the main aspects I see associated with such a robust economy. John uh, Charles, we see that we see that too
2: um, uh, in our in our industry. Um, the the bidding wars and the it's a, it's the inventory issue I think. So mm-hmm. the fix and flip market, there's bidding on new homeowners who want to buy a house, and there's bidding on the fix and flip market. And Redfin came out I think it was last week. They said the statistics were seventy five percent of purchases were, were bidding wars in April. It's mm-hmm. down now to 59%, but that's still an extreme percent. So in, from my perspective in the residential market, it's driving prices higher and it's harder for the appraiser to find the right comps. Right. Um, but the inventory issue is an issue. Um, and I wonder how you guys are, are dealing with that on your end.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I could tell you what, what I think and what I see happening is, is very interesting. And as I alluded to before, we've seen fund managers, just fund managers of these private equity funds, the aggregators, the hedge funds, they've raised huge amounts of cash in order to pick off a what I like to call the predictive wave of distressed notes and foreclosed properties that everybody thought was gonna come out of, of this long stretched recession that, that we talked about. Um, obviously those predictions fell flat, I'd like to say market fundamentals held up very well so investment cash both domestic and foreign it's it still continues to surge right. in the us and and why because we still have low interest rates and we still have attractive real estate at least offers very attractive returns relative to risk so you have all your institutional investors who need to keep their portfolio of stocks and other assets in balance they turn to real estate when those values fluctuate and portfolio concentrations get out of whack. So what does that all come down to? Well, it's heightened the interest of these institutional investors to now come in and start picking off single-family homes and single-family rentals. And it's exacerbating the problem. It's constraining the number of homes that are actually on the market. And I read an article this morning that I'm happy to even share with you later on. It was on Realtor.com which which said that investors reduced the for sale inventory by three-fifths in 50 states that they in the 50 states that they tracked. So you, you see it happen. And that even took into account uh, what what they're calling single purpose build to suit single family homes. So these are all done by institutional investors jumping into the market. Furthermore, the build for rent investors are competing with the for sale developers they're competing for the lots, the subdivisions. They're driving up land costs, so that's what all your residential developers and your and your more experienced developers are dealing with right now. That's right. what so difficult.
3: Yeah, and just uh, further on John's point, just dealing with the um, you know, the global economy we're in. Like, you know, I gave a quote for a foreign national from China that wants to purchase a non-stabilized hotel here in New York City you know, the hotel price is over $60 million. So we are able to give a, a quote on that, something we would finance, but that gives you to the extent of uh, how much competition there is uh, domestically and entities abroad who are very interested still in uh, real estate assets in the United States, but more specifically, even New York City, because New York City was hit the hardest during the pandemic, especially with our real estate market. So. We do see it uh, on the the men and turning and things of that nature, because even with our products like bridge loan financing, stretch bridge loan financing, we will look at the retail, the office property types, along with like multifamily and mixed use, which is much more competitive. But uh, to that extent, uh, we do see still a lot of competition from domestic and abroad regarding trophy assets here in New York City.
1: Yeah, I'll take it a step further and then all of these fund managers, to your point, Charles, that can't find these good deals or these investment properties. What happens now? All of a sudden, they want to become lenders. So, right. you know, I like to say, but, you know, when I started in the hard money private lending business, which was 30 years ago, I put money out at 16 and four. I don't care where you were, who, you, what you. It's 16 and four. No competition. So, fast forward. That 16 went to 14, went to 12, went to 10. Now I'm competing at like five, six percent. If you would have told me when I was doing deals at sixteen percent that I would ever be looking at a hard money deal at even seven percent, I would have walked away. And that's we're seeing it on both sides, whether it's on the the sponsor development side, but even as lenders, we're seeing the same amount of competition.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of competition. I think I think you guys raise several great points, um, but. No, I think that's an issue that we see from our investors, like literally on a daily basis, it's, it's a running joke in our office where like, hey, you got any deals like no, nope, no deals like it's just everyone's looking for like some sort of uh, distressed asset to acquire and just there there don't really seem to be many. Um, I, I guess we feel that once the foreclosure auctions start to not only open up, but to really like, gain momentum uh then there there should be uh more distressed assets uh, across uh, various asset types um I, I don't think it'll be a, a huge uh uptake or huge wave that uh we should all be preparing for but at the at the same time we're we are hoping that that there's going to be more inventory one and that uh deal flow will pick up because of these new opportunities that come about. Um, So, uh, Evan, um, what are you seeing on the ground from uh, in terms of like these bidding wars and like the time constraints that that are placed on appraisers?
2: These bidding wars are great for the sellers. you are selling your house, it's terrific. it's a pain in the neck for the borrower, for the lender, and for the appraiser. So just just this week, I won't, this this week, I won't mention my customer, but president of a lender's daughter was buying a property and the contract price was 249. And I, I mean the, the listing price was 249, the sales price was 279, 280, right? So My appraiser, that's a bidding war. It's it's a significant percentage over what the asking price was. So people are bidding that price up and it was worth it to her to purchase that. So my appraisers have to find comps within half a mile or they have to look for a mile or they have to go a mile and a half out and they have to go three or four miles out. So they got to find something that's gonna make that deal work. Market value in, in most markets, as we all know, the stock market is what someone is willing to pay for that asset. That's what the market value is. End of the day, a stock can go like this, end of the day, whatever that stock closes at, that's the value of that stock. That's not in the housing market. There's the appraised value and it has to be based on what else is sold. You got to compare it to other things. In the stock market, you don't compare, you know, Apple to its peers, uh, peer company's price earnings ratio. You just buy what the price is. The housing market's different because it's not your own money. It's a third party's money. So you've gotta find, the challenge is finding these things that make this a fair deal to the lender, uh, the underwriters are gonna, are gonna put through. And it's a, the bidding war is a challenge for appraisers. Again, appraisers wanna make it work, but they have to stay within these parameters to make it work. And the bidding wars have been painful for that side. The seller is, is hey, if you're selling your house, it's great. But the buyers, the appraisers, the lenders, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. Oh, that, that answers the question. So anyway, it looks like the loan's going to close for my my client's daughter. So that's good news. But uh, you know, the, the appraiser was struggling and it, it, it was un- unable to make the exact value. I'm sorry to say. I think 80% of appraisals make value. Um, this is one of them that didn't. But the, the deal was still close.
1: It, I'm sorry. You said it did not make value.
2: It didn't make the 30,000 over asking price because there were no comps that could support it, even with making adjustments to those comps. It didn't make the, the three eighty.
1: Right. So in a situation like that, the sponsor would just come up with more equity. Exactly. Shield the difference.
2: Exactly. And that, and that's what happened. So, um, and that protects the lender, uh, but it's yeah, the, the inventory issue is, is real and it's that's what's driving, and the, and the bidding is what's driving up prices, and it's a challenge for you know the appraisers and the lenders.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean that that story just sounds like so familiar. I feel like it's like so typical for, like oh these people got in a bidding war for this house, and they went thirty thousand, fifty thousand, over a hundred thousand over, um, and someone swooped in later and <laughs> put a higher bid in. Um, Crazy. Yeah, it's. And if you're a seller it's great <laughs> yeah exactly if you own assets it's it's amazing um and then you can refi and pull out money based on these, these higher values so it's there's the number of uh advantages to to holding on to assets right now which is why the market's so competitive both foreign and domestic to acquire these assets and it helps exp- explain the, the compression and cap rates that we're seeing um does anyone have any sort of last minute thoughts or comments that they'd like to add before we start to wrap up mm-hmm. charles john uh
3: well yeah as wrapping up um you know it's a great um discussion we're having here because you know the main thing is uh even though we have all these disruptions or issues associated with what's going on now within our line of work. The great thing is we are able to work. So the market is busy. We're keeping busy. It might be harder to find transactions here or there, but we are still in a great uh, position in the economy to help our clients, uh, to help our company and to move forward with uh, the mission of what we're trying to do uh, accomplish our overall goal in general for, you know, ourselves and for employers or just for our own businesses themselves. So we do have difficulties, but you know, it's a great time to be in our market.
1: Yeah, it's a good point, Charles. I always like to say that a lot of these disruptions and challenges always relate to new opportunities. And as long as your your company, yourself, your sponsors can, everyone could remain fluid, fluid, and remain able to pivot that there's always opportunities like even a lot of the challenges that we heard about today at least for us created opportunities for us for instance instead of trying to get distressed properties we'll get into different levels of the capital stack and hope for Correct. maybe a distressed situation like that so whereas we were predominantly senior private lenders we're now taking mezz positions pref positions so just Different avenues of opportunity that we now see, and again, I just think that a lot of these challenges create new ways and new opportunities.
3: That sounds great, John. I'll follow up with you on the MES and Pref. Maybe I can connect you to some of my brokers, and there might be another way for us to work together.
1: That'd be great, we'd love it. Thank you. Yeah,
3: definitely. No, I um,
0: think, go now we got to
1: keep now, we got to include Wheeland on everything. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I said earlier, access is our bank.
2: Um, I'll go a little more macro, Andrew, um, uh, and it's a it's a a play or a challenge to some of the people in the audience. America is the biggest economy in the world, still. Um, real estate is the biggest market segment in America, it makes up for 13% of GDP. If you put the mortgage and home insurance industry in that, 20% of GDP. You know what healthcare is? 7%. So we're the biggest industry in the world, and I think that you know, even with this, the appraisal thing and recruiting and, and getting the government, the press foundation by the government to recruit new appraisers and to make change. I think some of the leaders in the mortgage and real estate industry, some of the high level leaders at MBA or the biggest companies, you know, push for change in, in government, in Congress. You know, government moves so slowly, you know, th- thankfully for my appraisal industry, they've, they've made changes that I, that look like to be fast enough to create diversity in the industry, and get young blood into the industry, right? As, you know, as, as people in the appraisal industry are approaching retirement age, but it's gotta come from people making an effort, spending some time to, to do that. We're the biggest industry in the, in the world, that means. Biggest in America, biggest in the world. You know, uh, some of the leaders step up and do that. So that's my plea for, that's my closing statement.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love the, the positive spin that everyone's putting on things that, even though there are these challenges and issues that we're facing in today's real estate market that uh, we're, we're in a, a great time for not only for to, to own real estate, but to lend on real estate. Um, and and there, there's tremendous opportunity out there uh, really for everyone in our industry. Um, so I think uh, with that being said, I'd like to thank everyone. I'd like to thank John Latera from RealFi. Uh, Charles Ruffin from Axos Bank and Evan Connolly from Palm Beach AMC. Really appreciate having you guys on, um, and uh, we uh, we look forward to the next webinar. Thank
3: Sounds you so good. much. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Take
0: care. Thank
2: you, guys. Gentlemen, nice talking to everybody.